forever. Dog. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and sworn enemy of duvet covers. Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and canvas for your local candidate, baby. Baby. Oh, we can't say that yet. That's what we do at oh, Topics. Oh, God. Spoiler. A spoiler for the first time listeners. <laughs> I hate a duvet cover. Okay, here's the thing. You get the ones that tie on the side. I'm leaving them behind. For the new house, I ordered... A blanket and a quilt. Ooh, a quilt. Fuck you, duvet covers. I never got to see you ever again. I got a washable blanket and a washable quilt. Yeah, that's the thing. The cleanliness of it all, right? So you got to get a duvet cover so you can wash that. Oh, I can wash my quilt. I'm telling you. This is revolutionary stuff, Gabby. Did I ever tell you about the time I was in my sad, small bachelor apartment that I lived in after my breakup? And they had a very small washer dryer and something got on my my comforter, like I think wine or something. And I needed to wash it. And I'm stupid. So I took it and I stuffed it into the washing machine. It did not fit stuffed, And then I washed it. But what happened was the comforter itself wrapped around the middle of the washing machine and was stuck, wet, soaking wet, stuck because it couldn't spin dry because there wasn't any room. And so I'm struggling, soaking wet blanket, struggling to pull it out of the washing machine, but I can't get it because it's twisted and hooked around the middle part. So I'm just like pulling for hours, trying to get it out of the, the, I ended up having to like remove the middle, pull the whole thing out, break it just to get the thing out. It was the worst idea I've ever had. It was soaking wet. It soaked the floor. I have a question. What? So, so until this happened, you were just never washing your comforter? No, I would bring it to the laundromat. But this time I said, oh, no, I have a washer dryer. I'm going to just do it. Soaking wet, soaking me, soaking the floor, yeah. so, trying to pull this comforter while you pull it, squeezing more water. Total yeah. disaster. It's slipping on the floor, broke the washing machine, had to call my landlord and be like, so I'm a I mean, how do you even start? I was like, so here's what happened. I'm stupid. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, my washing machine at my apartment all the time when I wash my duvet cover, it won't spin it dry and it's sopping wet. And then it weighs like 40 pounds. And I somehow yep. have to get it from the washer into the dryer and then dry it for hours. So see you later, duvet cover. <laughs> You're not a part of my life anymore. And I feel incredibly <laughs> empowered. <laughs> That's good. I need to do that because I don't have whatever the thing is where you think things through before you do them. I don't have that. <laughs> I have a lot of that to the point where it's too much planning. Uh, well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty about everything from washing machines to duvet covers. And that's it. That's what we cover on this show. This is a this is a laundry show. Laundry. Gabby's gender, Allison's ex-fiance. That's it. <laughs> Did I tell you on Instagram, we were joking about that's what the whole show was about because people like give us shit about that. And then someone on Instagram was like, I actually got really excited to hear a whole episode about those two subjects. 
<laughs> and I was like, sorry. Oh my God. I just had the speak, just a quick aside. I just had sure. someone write on my Instagram, they, them aren't pronouns. Huh? Just now. <laughs> what does that even mean? It means that they don't like that I use they, them, but their response was to say they aren't pronouns, which is not true. <laughs> they are absolutely pronouns. I, you know, uh... <laughs> that's why that's my response from now on to that. <laughs> I was like, you can at least come at me and be like, those aren't pronouns for a single person. Those aren't, you know, anything. But just to say they're fully not pronouns is not grammar. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, we've got too much to cover to unpack that today. But I'll just say a gentle fuck you to that person. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, I'm really excited because this week on the show, we're asking Hugo Soto Martinez and Ionesis Hernandez some tough questions. These are two candidates for LA City Council that I am working with and doing fundraising for. So if you go to my Instagram, you can actually see uh, links for them, but they'll also be in the description of this episode. And they are progressives and they are running against people with way more money and they're running on really progressive policies. So it was like such a great interview and I'm really excited. They're incredible. And if you're feeling like the world is on fire and there's no hope, hopefully they will instill some much needed hope back into you. Yes. And later today, we'll be talking all about technology. Do we like it? Do we hate it? Do we use it? Friends? Or foe. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wrote friend or foe in the outline. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question. So you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Hiram, South Korea. International. A true international. We love to see it. We love to read it. Hiram says, Dear Allison and Gabby, my partner says that he thinks he needs to break up with me because he does not love himself. I don't understand why this is a reason to break up. I don't know what to say to that. And I'm a little bit tired. I never felt the need to end this relationship. I was content, but it seems mm -hmm. for him it is very hard to maintain our relationship. He said that he feels that no one else will love him as much as I do. And he says that he is not sure if that is a good or a bad thing. He says that he loves me, but he does not feel that he is able to maintain a healthy relationship. He said that he is always suppressing his needs when he is with me because he's always busy thinking of what I want. This is a recurring issue in our relationship. He gets tired when he is with me because he's always trying to consider what I need, but not his needs. I know this is a habit of his, so I tried to pay attention to his needs when we were together, taking care not to do as I please all the time, just because he lets me. He explained he has this habit in all his relationships because he just really, really wants to be loved. But now he is tired and wants time to be alone and pay attention only to himself, which is fair to him, but he wants to do so by blocking me out, which makes me feel sad. Would it be best to just let him go? This is a really hard time for me, and I don't think there's anything I can do. FYI, my partner has depression, diagnosed, taking medications, and maybe borderline personality disorder, not diagnosed. Thank you for being there, making your podcast and content. It is a big comfort just to be able to type this out and send it to someone like you too. Best regards. Mm. Well, I think maybe you do have to let him go because I don't think anybody should be convincing another person to be with them. I don't think it's healthy to have the dynamic where you are presenting arguments as to why someone should stay with you. 
Yeah. And I, I understand that it's really hard when a partner is like, I'm going through a hard time. Therefore, I shall go do this alone mm-hmm. because, you know, you're used to helping them out. That's what being a partner is. And especially if you're willing to provide them with that help, it can feel like a silly reason to end a relationship. But you also have to respect what he's telling you. And it probably took a lot of guts and self-reflection for him to realize that this is what he needs. And, you know, ultimately, sometimes we're we're not in a place where we can care for our partners the way that you need to to maintain a healthy relationship, like he mentioned. And so I think he's recognizing in himself that he doesn't have that capacity right now. He doesn't have that energy. He needs to focus on him. And it wouldn't be fair to you for you to stay in this relationship with him giving you nothing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think it's really actually incredibly commendable that he had the foresight to say that and to articulate what the problem was instead of just bailing or leaving. But for him to realize that right now he needs to prioritize himself and be on his own. And timing is everything, you know, I mean, it just might not be the right time. I think both of you sound like a little bit like you're on eggshells with each other. Maybe if he works to get himself right and um, you take the time to realize that in a relationship, you shouldn't be trying to not do as you please or feel weird having needs because this person feels like they can't fulfill them. So like, I wonder if you've been shrinking yourself a little bit in order to keep him. And maybe that's not like the best idea. Maybe you'll feel a little bit of relief and a little bit more free just without having to think about this other person who is seems to be really struggling. I know you can you're probably not going to stop thinking about him and maybe in time you can be in, in communication and be friends. But, you know, I think the timing is is off. I had a, a thing where I felt really resentful. I had a partner who we were together. The partner felt that they needed to transition. And I was at the time like so ready to help, like watching videos and reading like articles about how to be a good, you know, partner to someone who's in the beginning of their transition and just like doing all this work. And in the end, that person needed to be by themselves. Like that person was like, I actually need to go through this alone. I can't have your help. I can't have you with me while I do this. And they ended up being like, I don't actually need you. I want to go through this by myself. I don't want you here for that. And I was like, but I'm so ready. (laughs) Like, and so I felt resentful because I was like, oh, really? Like so many people would kill to have a supportive partner by their side during the beginning stages of transition. Like, you know, fuck you. Like you, you're throwing away this thing. But ultimately it's, it was his personal experience. It was his, you know, decision. And I shouldn't have been trying to insert myself if they didn't want me there. And I think ultimately it was it was for the best, even if I felt like, but I want to help. That's not enough. The other person has to want to receive the help or want to have someone by their side while they're going through it. And this person was similar to your boyfriend saying, well, I won't be able to be present. I won't be able to be the best partner to you during this. So did they actually in two weeks get together with someone else? Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. That was your experience. That was my experience. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Gabby was talking to, to the timing of it all, but I, I would also speak to the level of the relationship of it all. Right. So if you've been married with somebody for 15 years 
and they're going through a depressive episode and they're saying, oh, I need to just be by myself. Let's get divorced. Mm-hmm. You know, you've built a life together. You have made a big commitment to each other. You, you know, depression can really affect your, your thoughts in a way that maybe you're not seeing things as clearly as you would if you weren't in a depressive episode. And so I think, you know, in that scenario, it's maybe a little more of a fight, right? It's a little more of like, let's go to couples therapy. Maybe let's separate, but not divorce. Why don't we, you know, see? But I think if you're in a dating stage with somebody where you're not, it doesn't seem, you haven't told us, but it doesn't seem like you're even living together or that you have, you know, merged into a, the life partnership phase of it all. I think that this is this is really an opportunity to let him do this growth that he clearly needs and also wants, right? Like you don't want to hold your partner back from the growth that they that they're striving for. And as hard and difficult as it is to not take something personally, like a, how do you not take it personally when someone's like, "I don't want to be with you." <laughs> this yeah. is kind of one of those situations where it's going to help you to try to not take it personally. And to instead say, I bet this person could be with anyone right now and it wouldn't be right for them. I think a really wonderful gift that you could give this person is to let them go and to let them go in a way where you can say, I'm really proud of you for prioritizing your mental health in this way. And I appreciate you being honest with me about the reasons for ending this relationship. And if in the future you want to reconsider or you want to be friends, please reach out to me. Yeah. I will say that after you split up, you can't take it personally what they do after that. Because, you know, with my situation, I was like, what the hell? Which maybe doesn't make sense. And like you said, you wanted to go through this alone. But but like once. So, you know, if if you split up and then you're like, well, he's not actually doing the work and he's not, you know, doing this like that. It kind of you just kind of got to let that go and not have it be your problem or or take up a lot of your time or be your concern because everyone has their own process. Everyone has their own timeline. They might not just immediately jump into fixing or like, you know, bettering themselves. It might like they might just like slide for a little bit. Like you can't you can't then split up and then go, well, I let you go to do this and you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of advice I would give you. I think what you spoke to earlier, Gabby, is you want to be with somebody who wants to be with you. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that is an undercurrent of all healthy relationships, right? So even though right now you're thinking, oh, this is good enough for me. I'm content. This is fine. I think we can work through this. I'm curious if in the future, if you're with somebody who is more all in, who is able to have a healthier relationship pattern with you, who you don't feel like you need to constantly check in about their needs because they're better at articulating them in the first place, you know? So while it, it's such a major life shift. I also think that that you deserve maybe a better partnership moving forward. Definitely. Definitely. I hope that that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guests, Hugo Soto Martinez and Ionesis Hernandez. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. 
This week on the show, we have Hugo Soto Martinez, who was born and raised in South Central LA, the son of street vendors from Mexico. He spent the last 15 years at Unite here, organizing with mostly immigrant women in the hotel industry to win healthcare, higher wages, and respect on the job. He is currently running for LA City Council in District 13. And we have Inesis Hernandez, who is a policy advocate and campaign strategist, who is currently running for LA City Council in District 1 and has over five years of experience working in local and state legislatures, system actors, and communities most devastated by criminalization, the war on drugs, and mass incarceration, which I had to get in there because those three are big for me. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you for being here. So I wanted to ask about the beginning of how you knew you wanted to run for office. I wanted to run for office when I, I realized that that there's a huge grassroots movement building in Los Angeles. Uh, Nithya Raman, you know, beat an incumbent. And I was like, well, I live in a district with uh, a more unpalatable uh, incumbent. And so I thought we need to bring a sort of an organizer's approach to a bunch of this stuff, you know, bring people together and fight on the same issues. So that's what inspired me to run. What inspired me or was the straw, the last straw on the camel's back was when I stopped being able to be in this world like comfortably. You know, my day job is to try to end mass incarceration locally here in LA County. And we're doing a lot, particularly around gender justice and connecting families together. And even with doing all that work, coming home and then seeing like people that are my elders, people that look like my elders having to, you know, go through the trash cans for the recyclables, you know, every Tuesday. And so seeing that and, you know, the other crises that are going on around our city, like I was just like, man, you know, what I'm doing is not enough. And even though I love the work that I'm doing, I was like, we need to try to take some of these wins, some of these successes, these coalitions, these people that we've been able to stop, you know, jail contracts with to City Hall, because that's we, that's where the people are needed right now. Yeah. What's the difference between like working in a grassroots or local thing and then running for city council? Like, how is that going to elevate things for you guys? Well, you know, the, the thing is, the thing I've learned, right, is that elected officials don't talk about the root causes of what's causing this, right? When they talk about uh, homelessness, they don't talk about, there's only beds for 39% of the people. Nobody says that. You know, they don't talk about, you know, private equity. These huge banks are owning, you know, over 60% of the housing market uh, in Los Angeles, which, you know, just want to like extract the most amount of wealth. Nobody talks about the root. They're always like, you know, at the edges of what the issue is, right? Even the systems of policing, right? We talk about how we're going to stop crime, but, you know, stop because police don't stop crime. They show up after it happens. They don't talk about how we prevent crime, right? How we give folks good jobs and stability and, and resources. Nobody's talking about the root because, you know, they're beholden to those interests. Why, why would you go against the folks that got you into office, right? And so I think as an organizer, we're talking about what the root of these problems are, right? How to get to it. And, and, and since, you know, and we're both organizers, we know how to build coalitions. We know how to beat very powerful people. And so we're taking that same approach, right? And so that's been the inspiring thing for me, and which is a little different, but uh, we're just doing it at a much bigger scale this time. Yes, and to add to that, like, no one works harder, not, not even the government, than organizers. No one does more political landscape analysis, policy analysis, than organizers. No one figures out how do we leverage state funding to fund a LA County pilot or LA City pilot to do alternate types of crisis response 
organizers come up with these ideas. And so that last example might have been two in the weeds, but I, I, what I wanted to mean by that example is that right now the city council is saying, oh, you know, our hands are tied on certain issues because it's not our jurisdiction. It's not our responsibility. It's that's the county or that's the state. When we have been able to leverage state funding, state policies to actually impact things on the ground locally. So that's one of the things that we're going to take into City Hall is this finesse, this strategic connection of different like local governments, because the city of L.A. doesn't have its own health department. And when you look at the, uh, the house, the crisis of people who are experiencing homelessness on our streets right now, a significant number of them are going through mental health crises or substance use, uh, problematic substance use. And so being able to work with the jurisdictions that have that infrastructure and bringing it down so we can deliver that those services, that's also something I really, you know, we really want to bring in there that we've been doing for years and that we uh, want to connect the dots that they're intentionally not connecting. One of the things I find so frustrating with the main base of the Democratic Party is this idea of like, well, that you're asking too much. That's too impossible. We can't we can't even get there. How do you fight back against that with these ideas of, of really restructuring from the beginning all of these failed systems? You know, we I, I've organized housekeepers, dishwashers, and, and when you first interact with them, you say, we're going to take on your boss, like the entire corporate structure, and we're going to win the union. And a lot of people don't believe that that's possible, right? It, it, that's impossible to beat someone who's controlled your schedule, who's written you up, who's disciplined you, who's made you work off the clock, who's coerced you, they think it's impossible to do that. But when, when people come together in a collective way, because it, it, what you win is a reflection of the power that you build, right? I always say that. And so, and so yes, it is true. We are facing some very serious issues in the city of Los Angeles. I get that. But you know what? Uh, in 2016, I was in Arizona when we got rid of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. People thought that was impossible, right? In 2020, you know, people came around and defeated Donald Trump, right? And so we've done very difficult things, but it's about building that coalition of folks that are going to come together under a single issue and take on those powers. And, and, and you know, I've never been so hopeful in my life, right? I've been uh, in, the, in the trenches that there was here for 15 years, but the world is changing, Right. Youth, the youth are standing up. People are rising up. People are demanding more. And so we see like sort of the, the emergence of a new way of looking at them. And I think very happy. I think the coalitions that we're building are going to build enough power to make these things that seem impossible possible. I think what you're saying about that the younger generation is potentially looking at things differently is so exciting and helpful because you know, talking to even people in my parents' generation, even if they identify as liberals, even if they identify in their head as being progressive, at a certain point, they bump up against this wall where they go, well, we can't get rid of prisons or we can't view substance use in this way that isn't, you know, criminal. And yeah, I think like turning to these younger generations feels like a really viable tactic. 100%. Similar to what Ugo had, had given examples of, you know, obviously you talk about no, no more prisons, right? All the work that I've done for nearly a decade has been around trying to convince people not to build new jails, not to build new prisons. And it's taken years, but it's possible. And that was in 2019, we stopped L.A. County's $3.5 billion jail plan. When I say we, it's a, the Justice L.A. Coalition. The county for over a decade was trying to build two new jails, a women's jail in the desert in Lancaster and a jail in Chinatown for people with mental health needs. 
And so we were fighting that for over a decade. When we finally won in 2019, it was because we had invested many, many years in bringing like other experts. Like we had brought psychiatric doctors to meet with the LA County Board of Supervisors so they could hear from psychiatric doctors themselves. Like, you know, the symptoms of someone who's going through a mental health crisis often is violent and harmful acts. That those are sometimes the expressions. And for, you know, a, a government official to hear that from a psychiatric doctor is what helped us create a champion of that of that person to help us stop the jail. And so when we were trying to stop the jail, they told us it was impossible. We did it. And then we even moved millions of dollars that were destined for jail construction to build alternatives to incarceration. One of the last pieces on this is that we were only able to do that because we pushed the county to say, give us an opportunity to work with you to develop a roadmap of what it could look like. And so we developed a report with them, 114 recommendations saying, you can do all of these things to make sure that people don't end up in jail, that you don't criminalize people. And a lot of that is changing laws. So we don't criminalize people for drug offenses. When you look at the population of women in LA County and LGBTQ folks in our jail system, most of them are there because they can't pay their bail to get out. And the top charges are related to driving with a suspended or no license, driving without insurance, oh drug offenses, property-related offenses. So there are laws that exist, but they're, they don't need to exist. So a part of that is convincing people when you, you know, we need to abolish that too. But it's not impossible if you just, if you just do it strategically and build people. Yeah, I wanted to also piggyback off Allison's question for Inesis because, you know, pushing Democrats, right? Like in the in the last few years, it's been like, okay, we're Democrats. Okay, now we're leftist. You know, like the progressive agenda has bumped up on Democrats a little bit. Um, so how do you see that in the future? And how do you, like Allison said, get people on board with like, Democrat is not enough. Democrat is definitely not enough. When you look at the state legislator and the composition of the California state legislator, we're a majority Democratic legislator. And even in the year where Breonna Taylor was killed, George Floyd was killed, and millions of people were marching in the streets, the super majority Democratic state legislator of California did, could, did not pass police reform bills that were on their table. The governor didn't sign bills that were meant to implement police reform. And so when you say that, hell yeah, you're right. I'm, and that's infuriating. But then again, like these titles of Democrat liberal, like it's really about the policies, the campaigns that folks are moving forward and the values. And so people ask for me, like, how are you going to vote? Are you going to vote with the majority? Are you going to vote with your heart? It's like, I'm going to vote with the values that I have, that we've been doing the work, which is, is this policy or decision going to leave somebody behind? Is this policy or decision going to give more money to the system we're trying to dismantle? Or this money, this is this decision going to get, build something we'll have to destroy in the future? If it's yes to any of those questions, we go back and re, uh, go to the drawing board and re-strategize. And the last thing I'll say is this with Measure Jane, when we wrote it, I was one of the co-authors of that. We wrote it to make sure that the carceral system could not have any access to that money, that they couldn't participate that, and that the money would come from their budgets. And with, so with Measure Jane, it was one of those things around messaging, because sometimes to convince people, it's about how you talk about issues to them. So in one group, we're like, hell yeah, this is our way that we're going to defund the police here in L.A. County. And for other groups, it's like we have to just talk about the vision that we had. So we want these millions to go into youth. We want these millions to go into housing. So. I think even just talking about messaging is really important when we're thinking about who you're talking to, these Democrats, because it's a hot mess. <laughs> it really is. And I, you know, I also see a lot of people who are part of disenfranchised communities 
who feel frustrated and they don't, you know, especially I feel like in the disabled community with the way that we talk about Omicron and the way that we are just sort of like, well, if you get it, good luck and sort of ignoring their needs, feeling like, well, why do I even bother to vote? Why do I even bother to take part in the political system anymore? What would you say to those people? I grew up in a similar neighborhood, right? In South and South Central, you know, it's 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 poverty, right? It's it's folks who don't have access to good jobs, uh, you know. And and I, I grew up in South Central, but I went to school in Watts. And I remember when I went to Watts, I was like, wow, like it, it, I thought South Central, you know, was, was blighted, right? They didn't have access to resources. I was our school was right next to the projects, and so I get the apathy. Right? Why to feel cynical? Why why would you engage in a system that has let you down your entire life? Right, your entire life, you, you what you see around you, and so and so I, I can I recognize with with that sort of the, the level of apathy, right? And to me, even when I was organizing the union, I was like, I don't know, if this is going to work, but you know, I'm going to going to try it. And that first sort of taste of collective power, right? Like when the bosses. Shoulders respect was like, and I was like, oh my god, this is, feels pretty good, right? Like, I didn't know this was possible. And, and look, and I engage with this, uh, and I think Eunice is going to agree. When we talk, when I talk to somebody who is still in that world who hasn't got the taste of that energy, that power, a lot of it is it's going to be organizing, right? Like agitating folks about why it's important to fight, right? Giving a vision of how we can actually win. I think that the vision is a very important thing. Because it, it, it stokes people's imagination about what can actually be possible. And not in some fairy tale way, right? Like when, when I was approached, they said, we're going to do A, B, C, and D. And that's going to, and I was like, oh, that makes total sense. So I, I don't think there's a substitute to organizing. And so what's going to require is folks to get in the trenches with folks and, and share your story and present why it's possible to, to win, right? And sometimes all you need is just a small victory. Right. Just just a small victory because you can see like, oh, we won this. Now let's win something that's more difficult. And I think uh, as movement work, that is how we get into the longevity of the movement. Let's win one thing right now. It's not the end all be all. And let's continue to build our power and win something that's more difficult. But it all starts with that first little little spark. Yeah, I think also like for someone like that, if you don't show up and say what you need and what your needs are and what your story is. How can the people in office know, you know, what they need to be doing? But it's so precarious. Like, I remember uh, we had Neethi Raman on this show and I remember working for her campaign and I felt like if she didn't win, I was discouraged forever, which is like, it's so delicate. You know what I mean? And then her winning like opened so many doors. But I do remember thinking like, if we do all this work and you know, the election day, I was so nervous because it just seemed to mean so much more than just one person getting elected. So like, I mean, starting with Inesis, like, how do you feel about that pressure? I feel it every day. I feel that <laughs> pressure every day. I mean, going, I'm going against an incumbent, a career politician who's been in office over 20 years, who's represented this district for nearly a decade. I feel that pressure because I see my community struggling every day. Every day, like, I think, like, damn, how does my, my friend who's a single dad with two kids still live in Highland Park? Like, I know he's struggling. And so one of the ways that I'm trying to ease that pressure is by br- building tables with community. We already, you know, we have coalitions, we have those connections. But what I'm trying to do is be more intentional about the people who haven't had voices um, or had support at these at these political tables. You know, when we think about policy, especially for disabled people, it's policy that's made it's made of disabled people without disabled people. I feel that I have a serious responsibility 
to create that space for disabled people to come into the government, for us to talk about, you know, what are your priorities? What are your needs? And that's what I've been seeing more and more. It's not, it's not about, you know, you putting out the honey and them coming to you. It's about you going to the people and creating the policy tables and spaces to, to have these discussions about what they need. Because from the conversations that I've had, at least the incumbent has never met with the people that I've talked to. And that's a lot of people. And so I, when you ask me that question, hell yeah, I feel the pressure. It makes me not, it makes me not want to sleep and just try to keep working and raising money. Cause they're like literally, in my, and I'm not trying to sound corny when I say this, but a lot of people's lives are on the line of with their homes or even just like physically, like, especially disabled people. When we think about COVID, when we think about this district and how hard we were hit um, because of COVID. So it's a lot. I, I definitely feel the pressure is motivating, but it's also, I'm not gonna lie, it's hard because we are not freaking rich. We haven't been mm-hmm. you know, raising these treasure chests, war chests for decades and having to be working full time and having to still work because being a financial anchor in a home is, is serious. I think just even like the limitations of being able to participate in government. So it's a lot, but we're going to do it and we're going to fight. And what I suggest is people find political homes. Like if this is your political home, this is great because the elections will come and go. But there's so much work in between that we need people there all the time. It's not just for these these high moments because the little moments are what get us to these high moments. Yeah, I think also what you said about, you know, going out there and you realize that the incumbent has never spoken with these people, that nobody's ever come to them and said, what do you want from your government? What do you need from your government? So, you know, before we started recording, Ugo was talking about like a lot of smaller donations have led to you guys a little, you know, having more of a chance um, against people who do have these war chests of of money. And I think that's probably largely from you guys meeting with people who are like, oh, someone's asking me what I need. I'll participate in government, you know, even just giving $10 or whatever. So like when you see that change happen in someone, how do you sort of get over the, the hump to be like, okay, look, I'm coming to talk to you. Like, you have to trust me. I mean, yeah, I, I would say that um, it, it's it's incredible how lack of transparency there is in this process. You know, again, a lot of door knocking, right? A lot of uh, tabling and folks like that. What people repeatedly say is like, You're the, this is the first time. It has never happened, right? And through this campaign, I'm like, well, why, why, why don't they do this, right? Well, it's because they don't care, right? Like, they just, I just think they simply don't care. The name recognition, the flyers they put out there it's 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 been enough right it's been enough to win and so to me i i love doing that like I, i'm more of an introvert and so i i like one-on-one conversations the big crowds are the ones that scare me but when i'm at the door i'm like i'm like a fish in the water i'm like let's talk you know we talk for like 15 20 minutes and and people like that you're listening to them that you're paying attention to them that you're having a conversation it's very like we're almost normalizing like the political process it's like I feel like I'm just organizing, you know, I know we're running a pancake, but I'm just having a conversation. You know, sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree, but it's, it's, it's like a friend, you know, it's like, we're not at each other. You know, oh, I see your point. Well, let me see how I see my point. And then usually people end up on the same positions that, you know, I think uh, Nisus and I are both advocating for. So anyways, I, I've, en- I've enjoyed the conversations. Uh, I wish I could have more of them. And for people who, you know, are progressive, want to take part in, in voting, but, you know, they don't really have a lot of time to do extensive research on all of their local candidates. Are there any resources that you could recommend for people to just sort of 
see, okay, who's been vouched for by the by progressives? Who can I trust to vote for without having to spend hours of my time individually researching them? Yes. I mean, I think it depends on like what your priorities are. So there's organizations that focus on different candidates and races, but people like Knock LA, Ground Game LA do a lot of in, um, endorsements and, and put out, you know, the cards. We also have organizations like Sunrise Movement, who's, you know, specifically focused on environmental justice. You have organizations and like Justice, I mean, La Defensa, who are doing judicial kind of report cards. So we know who to vote for around the judges. And so there are organizations. Instagram's a good place to find them. Twitter's a good place to find them. And so you don't have to like do deep dives, but find your political home and see how, you know, how they feel about these candidates. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. You know, who do you trust? Right. And uh, we were both endorsed by DSA. Right. And if you're a socialist, like I'm an open socialist. Maybe that's your candidate. That's your person, right? And so folks have been like, oh, are you the DSA candidate? I'm voting for you. Not even a conversation. Like, oh, you're the guy from DSA? Yeah, it's, I'm voting for you. So yeah, who do you trust? What organization do you trust? What about if your values lean progressive and you know you agree with the progressive candidates' policies, but you're afraid that they just don't have a shot so that it's safer to vote for the moderate Democrat? You know, so like, because that's better than a Republican. How do you push back against that? Is it really a better choice? I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, it's your vote. It's one vote that you get. And it's like, you want to put it in this basket where you think might win or, or you want to vote with your values. Like, people have died for us to be able to vote and take that seriously. Like, match it to your values, your experiences, which is something I also want to lift up for us is that not many council members have varying life experiences or have been impacted by systemic harms. And I think we need to be able to uplift that and talk about that. And also like the labor that we've done, like one of the reasons I think we're good at connecting with people is because we've done these jobs. I worked at Chuck E. Cheese, Universal Studios, like I'm, Ugo has done a lot of these jobs. So it's, we know what the struggle is. And I mean, very excited to keep talking with folks, but I, I would say your vote is, you know, one time, choose it wisely. But, but you know, this is a good question to ask. It's like, uh, it's a question about viability, right? Uh, it, and it's true. It, it is you, well, I think to be viable, you need you need money, right? Uh, you know, and so luckily, I you know I think Eunice and I have done pretty well on fundraising, and you need a coalition. I think Eunice and I have done, both done pretty good building a coalition. So it's not like uh, you know Ralph Nader in two thousand, right? It's just like when I was graduating from high school, it was like Ralph Nader, like the Green Party. Yeah, you got like three percent, right? Uh, so I know probably y'all were probably like much younger than I was, but. You know, but it, but there was a thing, and I, that that stays in people's heads. It's like oh, I'm going to throw my vote away. But we're not in that place, right? I think what has shown us in the last few years is candidates who have a more progressive uh, platform. We're bringing new energy and different perspective. Absolutely can win. But again, right, the fundraising's there and the coalition's there. And so it's just a question of you know getting in there, get your hands dirty, and do some stuff. You know, and vote is voting is the only thing you do. Well, that's great, right? But there's a lot more we can be doing. Yeah, I mean, it's a risk. You feel like it's it's risky. And I do. I remember all the discourse around Ralph Nader. I remember people blaming him for Gore losing. I remember, you know, it happened in the last election with the Bernie Sanders and sort of blaming him for the moderate, you know, Joe Biden sort of being the Democratic nominee. And I remember a lot of people being frustrated by, well, if you just got behind Warren or, or Sanders, you know, it, this wouldn't happen. But people were so scared by the Republican option that I feel like then we like took some steps back almost, which is why like it's nice to see local politics be 
sort of fighting this idea. And I think maybe it's a more viable idea locally first, you know, like everyone should look at the other progressive or DSA vouched for candidates in their area, right? We're talking about LA, but the races like yours are happening everywhere. You know, our listeners are all all across the country, all across the world. And it's, you know, a larger movement. In your neighborhood, you're talking about like, how do you start? Like, how do you, if you're like living in a town, you know, how do you start? I think a big one for me was looking at gentrification, but like, how would someone sort of start being like, okay, what does my neighborhood need if you, let's say, don't live in LA? You know, okay, so I organized in Florida for two years and I've organized in, in, in Denver and have been in New Mexico. It's a very different world because I'll tell you, in Florida, this is a funny story. In Florida, what I learned was there isn't like existing stru- structures of power, right? You have the Chamber of Commerce. Well, in Florida, you don't have like a strong union movement. So there's two structures of power in Florida, I would say, uh, big business and the, the churches. And so I remember we were at a rally with this union rally and two things got the most applause other than people being agitated. It was whenever someone mentioned that their son or daughter was in the military, people were just like, it was a roar of applause. And when they talked about God and I was like, this is so weird. I was like, why are these two things getting the same applause? I'm like, this is so strange. But you know what, Wunji, when I was there intimately, it's like because there aren't these existing structures of power, it means that there's an ability for you to build your own. And so that means that a lot of these elections, right, people don't pay attention to these elections, right? And I'll give you an example. Like I had a, a dishwasher ran for mayor of Kissimmee, Florida, right? You know, it's just like this is like in Orlando, right? He ran a campaign and got like 35% of the vote. He didn't win. But to me, it was like a telltale sign that if you have a small group of people who are committed, you raise a little bit of money and you start talking to folks, you actually have a shot because there aren't those structures of power that you're competing with in those small, you know, sort of the, the smaller states where these structures of power don't exist. So I think there's a lot to be done in those, in those smaller cities, you know, outside of the, you know, LA, New York and other sorts, right? So very inspiring to see that. This is like a progressive union rally where they're like, yay, God, yay, the military. Yeah, people were like sharing their story and they would say, I'm here because of God. And he was like, roar. Like, I'm, I'm a veteran. And it was like, roar. I was like, ah, <laughs> not in Los Angeles anymore. Yeah, well, I think the South, definitely there's more emphasis on like VA failings and like you know, coming home from the military and not having the opportunities and structure that you were, you know, promised. And that's something that comes up a lot more in the South for, you know, obvious reasons. Uh, But yeah, it's interesting to go to a progressive event and have people be like, I'm here to unionize because of God. Like, you really got to meet people where they're they're at. You really have to like, it's so interesting. Exactly. And, so, and those are those were working class issues, right? It's like mm-hmm. working class issues. And so, again, meet them where they're at. That's where they were at. And to, to this day, that local is building an incredible organization, right? But it's working class issues. And that's why, that's why I'm a union org. Right. It's not like all these kinds of things that you would think of like progressives being. It's it's a, a wider range and it all deserves respect, which is fascinating. It's opportunities for other jurisdictions to do better than we have. You know, in 2016, I helped legalize weed in California with Prop 64. I didn't write it, but I helped implement it and help with the campaign. And 
you know, Prop 64, although it legalized and regulated cannabis in California, it wasn't perfect. It has a lot of issues. And so that's just one thing that other jurisdictions and other communities are taking on to organize around, like campaigns to legalize and regulate cannabis. And so those are opportunities to do better, to see what we will drop the ball in with Prop 64 and to implement better cannabis legalization and regulation. And also in a lot of places, especially when we look at rural communities, you know, there's a lot of what people say are low hanging fruit that can be addressed, policies that can be shifted. And so that's, again, what I mean by opportunity that we as people who have passed policies here need to be working and providing resources to these other places, including candidates and working and being a spider web for people so they don't have to recreate the wheel. And we share the resources, which we do in organizing, um, which we've done, you know, around different, you know, uh, campaigns to stop jail expansion around around the country. So I'm hopeful and excited about, you know, new candidates coming up and the prospects of what we could do in places where there's not, like Hugo was talking about, this already pre-made infrastructure of organizing or, you know, a campaign. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. How do you get through to people, you know, maybe like in the working class who are voting against their own interests, you know? So like, I think a lot of people tend to vote conservative, even though those policies don't actually help them or their lifestyle. So how have you kind of tried to to get through to them about that, that progressive policies, even though it might seem scary or not what they've normally identified as, would actually benefit their day-to-day life so much more? Wow. That is a great question. And it is a difficult one to overcome. Again, I sort of take my my experiences from organizing in the South, you know, just coming up against some very serious conflicts, right? Because, you know, that's the world they've grown up their whole lives, right? And so it's hard to overcome so much with part of your the collective unconscious, right? But I, I would say that the one thing that has been very inspiring is the, it's, it's the LGBT movement. And sorry, I'm going to get a little nerdy, nerded out, right? But if, if you look at movements, right, and how long it's taken to achieve a victory, and I want to talk about legalizing, you know, same-sex marriage or just anybody can get married, right, regardless of your gender. That fight is categorized as the fight that was the quickest from beginning to end, right? Like, like you think about desegregation, right, getting rid of Jim Crow. That took hundreds of years, right? But gay marriage, the issue of gay marriage, right, or same-sex marriage was the quickest. And, and to me, and this is just my theory as an organizer, because it, when I read that stat, I was like, that's kind of a vexing situation. How would that happen? Well, this is what I think would happen. I think the most powerful thing of that movement was folks coming out to their parents because it forced the parent to make a decision. Do I continue these like sort of bigoted beliefs or do I support the person I love unconditionally? And it created like this conflict in a lot of the older generation where they said, you know what, this beliefs are incorrect because I love my progeny more than or my son or daughter or whatever, right? More than, than this hate that I hold on to. It was the most transformative thing that could happen, in, in, I think, in that movement. And there's been, you know, folks have written about this. So this sharing of story, right, the, of, of the issues, I think is a very powerful thing. You know, it's one of the first things you learn as an organizer, share your story. But I think there's so much power in in sharing your story because it requires vulnerability. It requires for you to be open with someone that's perhaps a challenging thing. And so I, I would say that that is one of the, the most important ways to, to do that. And, and you know, it has 
helped me and, and when I was in the South, overcome a lot of the things that folks were holding on. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think people recognize how individually they're being affected, right? And so that's what I, I would say. It's like a, a pin, a, but it's a great question. It is a difficult one to overcome. It's so hard because it's people that are like, I believe 100% what you're saying, but I am anti-choice. And you're like, God damn it. <laughs> we were so close. I've seen a lot of like even more upsetting to me, or I mean, both are upsetting, but like, oh, I, I'm totally into progressive policies, but I don't believe in trans people. <laughs> or I'm so into progressive policies. They, they wouldn't even say progressive. They would say policies that, you know, would help me as a working class person. But socialism, eh, I don't like that word. And you're like, oh, like it's just like one <laughs> small thing. You know, there's so many people that will be like uh, voting against their interests, like Allison said, literally just because of abortion. So I don't know. I mean, I was going to ask how you guys pick the policies to focus on, you know, how you you think about like going into your website and saying, OK, what am I going to put on my website? What are my like top five things? Like, how do you choose that? With community, you know, we're not walking into like a city council where there's no work being done. We're walking into a city council where there has been decades invested in passing laws to protect street vendors to, and you know, impact and protect renters. Uh, to build projects that are affordable. And so, and a lot of bad policies, what we've been doing is organizing policy roundtables and bringing in the people who have been fighting in the city county level and be and in the county level as well to tell us what are your priorities, you know, in the next four years? What are the issues that are moving? How can we be supportive? These are my values. What are you know, what how are you feeling about the campaigns you're moving? And we've done them on public safety, we've done them on housing, the homeless, the houselessness crisis. We're doing it on the budget, public safety. And I hope when people hear this, they know that. Policy should never come from the top down. Policymakers don't have the solutions to the issues that we are experiencing in our communities. And that might be like, then why are you becoming, you know, why are you running for office? But it's because community has those solutions. And so I might be running for LA City Council District 1, but I'm bringing thousands of people that I've organized with to the table with me. And so that's, I think, just wanted to share that we're doing this collectively because I don't have all the ideas. I might be an expert in alternatives to incarceration and in moving money, I'm trying to become an expert in housing uh, and some of these other issues, but the people have the answers. Yeah, well, Ugo was talking about like, you know, going up to the door and meeting people and disagreeing a little bit. So like, this is a big one for me. Like, let's say you go up to the door, you talk to someone and they're like, look, I agree with everything you say, but I am anti-abortion. <laughs> yeah, I've had, we've had that. I mean, when we talk about no new jails, that's the issue. Yeah, I, I, I would love drug treatment. I love mental health. But we need jails and we need police. Like, well, we're, we always get, you know, folks like that, that have these issues. But this is where the real legwork is done. It took us nearly a decade to stop a $3.5 billion jail, dollar jail contract. Not because of, you know, the government moves slow, but because we had to convince people that this was the right thing to do. We had to invest in political education and hearing what their issues were. And then saying, like, this is a situation now because these have been the political decisions. We could try things differently. and. You know, I think when you asked that question earlier, I thought about like my family, you know, I thought about like years ago before I started doing this work. And if one of my loved ones saw someone who was a person experiencing houselessness on our streets, they would blame that person. They would look at them and say, dang, look at that person. You know, they're, they're using drugs. They're all these things and blaming the individual. But I've dedicated myself to informing my family, to saying like, look, 
These are the systemic failures that have led to this person being on the streets right now. We are not providing services, housing, doing all these things. And I'm not gonna lie, it's taken years for my loved ones to get to a place where they see someone that's on the street and for them to be like, damn, we, we're failing them. Like, why don't we have enough mental health beds? Why don't we have enough access to drug treatment? Why? Because the government is making these decisions. So, you know, it's not something that you're going to convince somebody from one day to another. It's something that you have to commit yourself to doing daily and for long term political education and having these transformational conversations with people that take a long time. So it's that's just one thing that it just takes patience and a commitment. Before we move on, is there anything that you want to share about like a shift you had in how you view politics or local politics that sort of like helped you? ignite yourself to to do this really tough journey and fight? I can go way, way back, right? I went to UC Irvine. Uh, I got a criminology and political science degree, which is coming very handy right now, I've learned, because <laughs> some time, right? You know, and so I, I did a, I, I wrote a research paper on juvenile, uh, well, just in full disclosure to the audience, uh, I was a dropout and was on juvenile probation. So my life could have been very, very, very different. And so I remember this doing this research paper and I was doing on juvenile crime, right? Because I was like, I was a juvenile. Like, I guess I want to understand my surroundings more. And, and the study eventually led to how much time and love that a parent gave to the kid. And actually, that was like the biggest factor of whether that person was going to be a criminal. And it was like shocking to me. I was like, oh my God, this is in 2005. And so when we won the union... And the transformation of winning a union, I was like, this is it. This is where it has to happen because we're literally changing the economic system of this individual person in a tangible way where they can give their kids time because they don't have to work two, three jobs, where the kid the kid has access to health insurance because now we won that, right? They don't have to go eight, nine hours in a government clinic. And it's going to give the opportunity to so many more opportunities. And to, and to me, that was one of the biggest shifts. But I was going to be something else. I'm going to be some sort of attorney. But uh, that study and the union transformation to me was just yeah, completely eye That's cool. I love that. I mean, it's all tied back to like these primary relationships and these caregiver relationships. And, you know, we, we blame people for things that we can track back and be like, oh, this, this is exactly why this happened. <laughs> right. It's not some fatal flaw. Preventative versus reactive. So I think it was two moments for me as well. You know, when, when I went to college, I was going to be a cop because I saw a lot of my loved ones go to jail and criminalized for lack of access to mental health and drug treatment. And then when I went to school, I was like, oh, hell no. Nah. Like none of these carceral or law enforcement responses could ever meet the needs of my loved ones or community. And I also learned that it was systemic, that it wasn't just my loved ones and friends, but it was a bigger issue. And so when I graduated college, like I wasn't going to be a cop anymore. And that shift in learning in school, like what I thought was the solution wasn't the solution that got me into policy. So I'm, that's one thing that I'm grateful for. But even for like thinking about running for office, like the work that we're doing, we have been so successful in the last three years, moved hundreds of millions of dollars, stopped contracts, build out alternatives. We're about to build out alternate crisis response. So you can call 988 and not get law enforcement, you know, come to your house when you have a, when you're having a mental health crisis or your loved one, like all of that closing down men's central jail is on the cusp of becoming a reality. And it pains me to leave that work to, to run for office. But when last year we passed Measure J and we had over 2.1 million voters support it, that's when I knew, like, we did Measure J from the outside. 
as community, as organizers, during a global pandemic, when we could not knock on doors, it was all digital that we did that. And so that really showed me the power of our community and showed me like, and proposed the question to myself, like, what are you going to do for the next four years? Are you just going to keep watching as the, your community gets less, you know, is still left behind? Or are you going to try to fight and bring those people that you won to this space? And so Measure J really was a flipping, uh, was one of the switches that flipped for me where I was like, we can take this inside and really, you know, turn shit up in there where we need to, because right, all the money's there. We're one of the richest cities in the whole world, yet we have over 40,000 people on our streets. Why? Because of the political decisions. It's not mother nature. It's not something we can overcome, just political decisions. Can you just describe Measure J just for those who aren't familiar with it? Yes, I'm so proud of it. Measure J was a LA County ballot initiative that it was in, its intention is to move 10% of locally generated tax dollars into uh, alternatives to incarceration and community reinvestment, such as drug treatment, mental health, and young people in LA County and small businesses. And it passed last year with uh, 2.1 million voters. And this year, when we implemented year one, we got at least $187 million moved from Measure J into the community um, recommendations that we developed. So we passed Measure J and we implemented and we're going to keep getting that money. And so we need to take that to City Hall. Let's get a Measure J for City Hall without having to do the ballot initiative, right? Let's just move the money there. <laughs> oh, this was so wonderful. I feel silly saying this, but want to play a game show. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have and then tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I just I just get to decide. Think of me as just an incumbent who is just throwing my weight around. <laughs> okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of four years is very good friends with their dentist. They go to get a root canal done and their friend, the dentist, wants to make sure that their mouth is numb enough before starting to do the root canal. Your partner can't tell if their mouth is numb, so they jokingly suggest that the dentist make out with them so they can see whether or not they feel it. The dentist laughs and then proceeds to kiss your partner for about 15 seconds. Would you stay with this cheater who was, in fact, too numb to feel this kiss anyway? Oh, my God. <laughs> for context, I've been having to make these up for like two years. And so I've run out of stuff. <laughs> I've run out of all the regular stuff. Has my partner been interested in their friend before? No, but they're, they've always had like one of those like kind of flirty friendships. Wow. Do they text? Yeah, they text. Ooh, that's a good <laughs> <laughs> Has my partner visited said dentist more frequently recently? No, no change really in their relation. You know, they were actually friends with the dentist before you guys even got together. Mm. Now, follow up. This is clearly against dental policy, right? <laughs> <laughs> like this is like criminal in some way. Uh, I don't know enough about those laws. If it was your therapist, definitely. But uh, your <laughs> dentist, I don't know. Wow. Okay, I'm going to say I'm going to break up with them because I feel like they don't have a good grasp on boundaries. Okay. Or they just have a kind of like a bizarre sense of humor. I mean, I love a bizarre sense of humor. I don't know. Guys, would you stay or go? Wait, 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 wait. My partner and I, are we in a uh, like monogamous relation? Yes. Oh, Done, done, done. <laughs> you broke my trust. 
You can't recover. <laughs> can't recover. You're triggering my all these years of therapy. I cannot overcome this trigger. I apologize, but we're done. Can't ever go to the dentist again. Your teeth start falling out. Yeah. You're like, I am so. <laughs> I'm going to dream about my teeth falling out again because of this. <laughs> exactly. And that's an anxiety dream. If you have that reoccurring dream. I've had that. I've had that. Damn. I'm going to look that up now. Thank you, Gabby. And I, <laughs> the, the petty in me wants to say, hell yeah, I dip. And I'd get people to write bad Google reviews. But the abolitionist in me. Wants to meet my partner with love and try to figure this shit out. So those are my two answers. Even if I did talk with my partner and give it another chance, I'd still do the bad Google reviews and try to get a campaign for my friends to do it too. <laughs> I like that. Fair I like enough. that. Forgive your partner. Take down the dentist. Seems like <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our next game. Is this a date? You are at an art museum and go to the information desk to see if there are any free tours. The volunteer behind the desk says all tours cost $50, but they are about to go on their break and are willing to show you around for free if you follow their art-focused Instagram account. They then give you an incredible tour for over an hour filled with laughs and some tears. Is this a date? <laughs> yup. He wants you to DM him through that Instagram. <laughs> yup. So you see right through this is definitely a date. It feels like it. A museum. That's, you know, we're in a pandemic. I haven't been anywhere. So I'm already in a museum. <laughs> we're already somewhere. You're like, honestly, just going to a location is a date at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so sad, but true. <laughs> I think it's also a date, mostly because I'm so I'm so starved for yeah. <laughs> culture. <laughs> Hugo, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. That gave me butterflies. I felt like a date. Just hearing <laughs> about the scenario. So, yes. It's really romantic. It's so romantic. It's the beginning of a rom-com. <laughs> okay, I'll note this down to put it in a script someday. <laughs> yeah, it's a rom-com called Paint by Numbers. Why is it called Paint by Numbers? Because I, I just thought of anything about, like, art. I just came up with Broad Strokes. It's called Broad Strokes. <laughs> and it stars <laughs> Matt Damon. And Katherine Heigl, go. <laughs> okay. Not my best casting choices, but I had to go with it. I wouldn't be excited to see it, but I would still definitely see it. <laughs> right, of course. It's the Valentine's Day movie we all want to see. Yes. <laughs> no one wants to see that. The worst cast I could have come up with. <laughs> but we're all going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We're all going to watch it. <laughs> okay, our final game. Are you a terrible parent? You have a ring doorbell that catches footage of your 15-year-old son smoking cigarettes one night. You confront your son and ask if he's been smoking cigarettes. He denies it. Knowing you have video proof, you say, if you don't tell me the truth, I will publicly humiliate you. He lies to you again, and you post an incredibly embarrassing video of him picking his nose on your Facebook. Following this embarrassment, your son never lies or smokes cigarettes again. But he does hate you for two and a half years before getting over it. Are you a terrible parent? First of all, the ring doorbell, I do not endorse. The ring doorbell, I think, calls the police. So already you're a bad parent. Yeah. <laughs> bad parent. You're bringing in surveillance. Sorry to Ring, who may want to sponsor this podcast. We won't allow it. <laughs> I say no. You're a bad parent. I say yes. You're a bad parent. Who cares about picking your nose? You're embarrassed to pick your nose? If it was on a video on Facebook and you're 15, you wouldn't be embarrassed if your parents posted that? 
I guess. Yeah. Mm. I say you're a terrible parent from the jump because you own a ring doorbell. Yes, I agree. Because you should be having open and candid conversation about drug use with your kids. Shit. There you go. There you go. I agree. I would agree. I can get past the ring, but the first approach was kind of abrasive. I would have said, <laughs> son or daughter, or, I really love you, but I noticed you're having, you're smoking cigarettes. And, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Or do you want to talk about it? Always lead with love, especially the people you love. You shouldn't leave with manipulation and blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my mom did. My mom led with guilt and fury and, of course, la chancla. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> lead with that. Yeah. That's what drove us to the streets. <laughs> That's what drove us to the streets is so funny. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming today. This was so informative and helpful. And we are so excited to get the word out about your campaign. So where can people find you and follow you and everything that you're doing? We're on all the social media platforms. We're on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. It's my name. So Eunices 2022. So you can follow us there. We have a website. Please look at our uh, campaign video. It's coming out in Spanish very soon. But yeah, all the social media platforms. Yeah, you can find us on uh, ugo2022.com. The, the H is silent. Uh, we're saying it in Spanish. Uh, yeah, you'll see all the socials, other things. And, and of course, you know, we talked a little bit about this for Eunices and I. Folks can donate. Uh, you know, that's always a We're 100% grassroots campaign, not taking any conflicted money. So every little bit helps and uh, it's helping lead the revolution here in Los Angeles. Yes. I'll put my donation link in the description for people. Right on. Thank you. So Ugo's race, there's many candidates for that race. So in June, there's several different outcomes that could happen. But in my race, it's just me against the incumbent. And so the decision is not going to be made in November. The outcome of our election for CD1 is going to take place in June. And so when people are thinking about when to volunteer, when to donate, that moment for my campaign is now because we're not going till November. It's me against the incumbent in June. And that's what we need to throw down. Thank you for letting me share that. Of course. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Y'all are amazing. Thank you for giving us time. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about technology. Beep, bop, boop, beep. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. 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 Ah! <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> I'm sure you recognize that baby. Melissa is joining us for topics, which is always a real thrill for me. Melissa, why do you have an Alexa in every room? <laughs> because I like for my life to be as simplified as possible. I like to walk in a room and just be like, turn on the light. I like to be able to say, like, what's the temperature? What's the time? What is it going to rain in 30 minutes? Anything I need is just at the command of my voice. You have no worries about being spied on. No. The more that people know, the better. If I get kidnapped, you need to know where I am. What? <laughs> people know in secret. I don't need people knowing in a way that I'm just like out here sharing my thoughts and feelings. But if you can be in my head and make my life better, great. Love it. I sort of feel that way, too, where like I don't really mind when I like search for something on my computer and then my Instagram shows me ads for it. I'm more worried about like in my apartment building, 
there's security cameras and the people that live in this apartment building with me can watch those security cameras. That I don't like. Yeah, I mean, I stripped in front of your security cameras without noticing. So Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I am worried about the rise of the machines. I regret ever putting anything about myself on the internet, even as I do this podcast. I am concerned like about what about when the Alexas rise up? No, that's why you got to be nice to them. You got to be nice now. <laughs> Mine, when I say thank you and things, they say you're welcome or have a good day, Melissa. Oh, like, you think I, the Alexas will let you live? Yeah, because I'm one of the ones that was nice to them. <laughs> wow, you really are polite to our robot overlords. I am. I am. I think I what I'm most worried about in terms of where technology is heading is the ability to make things that didn't happen appear as if they did. Deep fakes. Deep fakes. So like being able to like make it seem like somebody said a specific thing by putting all their various things they've said over the years together and making it superimposing it into a video and making it look like their lips are moving in that way to a point where people can't even tell what's happened and what's not happened. Yeah. That is, I think, the, the scariest. That's terrifying. That's already yeah. happening. Yeah. This is what I think about technology is what Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park. You were so worried about whether you could do it. You didn't think about whether you should. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think I see a lot of videos of like humanoid robots. And, you know, obviously I'm a huge fan of Star Trek. So I have, I love, you know, the idea of like an android but I also, you know, every time data malfunctions, you can't, there's nothing you can do. At a certain point, I was like, I think you got to deactivate this very beloved character because he's more trouble than he's worth. And so, like, I worry about, like, sending robot cops to your door, that sort of thing. But also I worry about people being able to, like, being able to know so many things about you that you can't ever go off the grid. Like, I'm not putting a chip in my head. I'm not doing any of this stuff. Like, I want to go live in the woods and no one be able to find me. But that's not true because I have my phone. We put tracking devices on ourselves, you guys. Mm-hmm. Yep. Part of me thinks it'd be really cool, though, to have, like, like a key in my wrist. <laughs> like, no. why? Where I can always... Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I will say, at the place I go in Mexico, the key to the door for your, your hotel room is on a wristband that you wear all week. So you never have to worry, oh, did I bring my key? Because it's on your wrist. Can you pay with it too? No. Because there are places where you can do that, where the key's on your wrist and then everything's built into that little thing. Seems pretty cool. Yeah. I guess it's one of those things that like, okay, so I have the key to my apartment on a bracelet on my wrist. Well, then that mean that someone will steal my bracelet. Oh, I have the I have it inside my wrist into my skin. Well, that means somebody chops off my hand. It's again, like, what do we do with the danger of it all? As someone who does not like shots, I definitely do not want something implanted in me. But that's just because <laughs> of physical and emotional reasons. But if my physical and emotional reasons were able to like be less than like my convenience reasons, I'd be all for it. But I'm not. <laughs> Have you guys read <laughs> The Circle by Dave Eggers? Yeah. Okay. So that scared the crap out of me. The the part where she's recording everything and she catches her parents having sex, that and then it's already live broadcasted. That's my fear. Like this thing where we're so normalized on like filming and, and there's no de time delay to think about things. I just worry about like the rewarding of that. And I also worry about how much 
blackmail material, the government, like I'm a writer. I Google insane shit all the time, but maybe like a company can use that to be like, Gabby, we need you to do some, you know, whatever they can control me by being like, well, you Googled and that, you know, how long does it take for someone to bleed out? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I worry that there's too much of a paper trail. And I don't like when I look up something and then it's immediately on my Instagram. I don't like when I talk about something. I say to Mal, hey, maybe we need new couch pillows. Boom. New couch pillows ad on my Instagram. That I don't like. I don't like when it's from you talking about it. But when I'm Google it, I'm like, I get it. I'm nervous. You know, my elderly neighbor who we're friends with, Dita, she's, uh, she told me that I shouldn't have gotten tattoos because the government can track me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I worry about like, what if they give us the chip and then it is a kill switch? What if the robots are so strong they can burst down our door and arrest us? If it's a kill strip, you won't be here to do anything about it. So I'm moving to the woods. (laughs) I'm moving to the woods and I'm throwing my phone in a lake. Okay. All right. But you also have like a Google home. So what are you doing? I know. And I am scared of it. That's why I also say thank you to it. See? Please don't kill me when when you're able to shoot lasers and kill us all in our homes. Yeah. It's interesting that you always jump to mass murder with everything. I agree. Population control. The government is population controlling us all the time. There's tons of shit we don't know about. You should Google Havana syndrome. I mean, peep, there's stuff in the airwaves. And they're going to use it against you. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. If you Google. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's stuff in the airwaves. It's all there in the water. All right. Once we got to you saying in the water, it feels like a good time to wrap this up. What do we rate this episode? Um, 11 out of 10 conspiracy corners. No, God, no. Um, <laughs> I'll give it uh, 62 out of 30. I'm just here for convenience. Oh, yeah. And I will give it 14 out of nine local politics. Woo! Well, thank you to Hugo Soto Martinez and Ionesis Hernandez for being our guests. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mott's Beep Bop Boop Alexa. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, patreon.com slash Dunn at she is not Melissa on Instagram at JBU podcast on Instagram and Allison what's your substack emotional support lady dot substack dot com woo bye bye forever <laughs> dog <laughs>